opened your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. This is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. A few weeks ago, I was having dinner with some friends, and we were having a conversation about the afterlife and biblical repentance. One of the passages that came up was this very passage in Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus. And uh, soon after that, Pastor Brent had asked me to speak to you this morning. And this passage was already on my mind because of that conversation. And so I thought it would be good for us to look at it together uh, for a couple reasons. First of all, this passage summarizes in one word what it is that determines where a person goes in the afterlife. Uh, That one word is found at the end of this story in verse 30. It's the word repentance. Another reason I chose this passage is because it shows us that there is more to the afterlife than we sometimes think. And I'll explain what I mean by that as we look at the passage. Just by way of contextual background information, the Gospel of Luke was written by a physician, Luke, and he was addressing someone named Theophilus. And Luke tells us at the beginning of his gospel that he's writing to Theophilus and to all his readers so that we may know with certainty the things concerning Jesus Christ, his life, and his ministry. And so the book starts out in the first four chapters talking about the background of Jesus, Jesus' birth, his boyhood, and his baptism. And from there, it goes on chapter 4 through chapter 9 to describe the ministry of Jesus in Galilee, in the north. And then chapters 9 through 19 talk about a road trip that Jesus took. Uh, He went from Galilee in the north down to, or I should say up to, Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, he was ministering and teaching to his disciples and to the scribes and Pharisees and others. And by the time we get to Luke chapter 16, Jesus has made it to the area of Perea, Perea, on the east side of the Jordan River. And we find in Luke 16, 1, that Jesus is teaching his disciples and he's teaching them about finances. This is the account of the unjust steward. And near the end of that account, He says, you cannot serve God and wealth. As we keep reading, we find out that the disciples were not the only ones who were listening to Jesus teach. The Pharisees were also there, and they happened to be interested in money. Verse number 14, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. The problem with the Pharisees is not that they had money, it's that they were lovers of money. And so this is the backdrop for the teaching of Jesus when he speaks of the rich man and Lazarus. In this passage of scripture, Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, Jesus tells us about a man who ended up in a place of torment because he did not repent of his sins. Jesus tells us about a man who ended up in a place of torment 
because he did not repent of his sins. Follow along as I read the account. Verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Wow! What an incredible teaching by Jesus. This passage is organized into two main sections. Uh, the first main section is verses 19 through 22, which is a comparison of two men in this life. A comparison of two men in this life. The first man that we're introduced to here is the rich man, verse 19. Now, there was a rich man. The first thing that stands out to us about this man is that he's characterized by how much money he has. He is called the rich man. His wealth distinguishes him. Nowhere in this verse is his personal name mentioned. In fact, the whole story, his name is not mentioned. Normally, when you introduce somebody, uh, you would want to know what their name is, but his name is omitted here. That's peculiar because other people's personal names are given in this story. The poor man's name is mentioned, Lazarus. The name Abraham is mentioned, 
but not the name of the rich man. And what makes it even more peculiar is that he is a very prominent man. He is the main character of the story. This story is about him and how he ended up in flames. And yet still no mention of his name. Uh, the Bible does this sometimes. And the reason is because this man is not worthy to have his name mentioned. He doesn't deserve it. Uh, one of the other places where this happens in the Bible is Exodus chapter 1. There it's the story of Pharaoh and the two Hebrew midwives. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is the top man in the country. He's the leader of the country. He's a very prominent character in that story, and yet his name is not mentioned. Pharaoh is a title. The king of Egypt is a title. No mention of his name, even though he's the prominent leader of Egypt. But two people whose names are mentioned are the midwives, Shivka and Pua. They are mentioned by name, even though they are very lowly. They are servants. In fact, they're servants of slaves. The Hebrew people were slaves, and these ladies were servants to them. They were female servants of slaves. And so socially, they were low on the social spectrum. And you would think if anyone's name would be mentioned in that story, that it would be the top man, it would be Pharaoh. But instead, the names that are mentioned are the, low, the lowly ones, the two midwives. And a similar thing is happening here in Luke 16, where the top man, his name is not mentioned. That's the rich man. But the name of the low man, the poor man, is the one who gets mentioned. And that's the way the Lord operates. Uh, the writers of Scripture, Moses in Exodus 1 and Jesus here in Luke's Gospel, uh, mention those who have faith and omit those by name who do not deserve to have their name mentioned. As we keep reading, we find out that this man was spending his money on himself. He habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. Purple cloth was the clothing of luxury. It was fine clothing. And he's wearing purple and fine linen. And my translation says that he was dressing this way habitually. This was how he normally dressed. And the reason they put that word habitually there is to try and bring across the force of the underlying biblical language to express that this was not a one-time way in which he dressed, but this was a pattern of his life. He habitually dressed this way. Some people, uh, lot, most people, wear work clothes almost every day, and then on a special occasion, maybe on uh, Sunday, they wear their Sunday best. Well, this man had his Sunday best, or his Sabbath best, every day. He was clothed and living in opulence, a lavish lifestyle. By contrast, verse 20, we get introduced to the poor man. A poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate. And the first thing we learn about Lazarus is that someone or other people laid him at the gate. Notice it doesn't say that he walked to the gate himself. 
he was laid there by others. It doesn't say he was standing at the gate. And this implies that he was unable to get himself there. Other people had to put him there. Uh, Physically, he was in trouble. And it says that he was laid at the gate. Uh, The Greek word here is a word that is often translated as to throw or to cast, to throw down or cast down. And it's not the usual, it's not a word that you would expect to, to be here. You might expect Jesus in telling this story to say that this man was set down by the gate or he was placed there. But he says that he was laying or cast or thrown down there as if he is unvalued and unloved. He was just sort of dumped there. They just, they just dumped him. And he finds himself at his gate, at the rich man's gate. The rich man had a gate, which means he had property. He was wealthy. The poor man is sitting at the gate. He wasn't invited onto the rich man's property. The rich man didn't see him out there and have compassion for him and bring him onto his property and provide a place for him to recover and to be, to be nourished. Uh, instead, he's at the border. He's at the boundary of the man's property. He's at the gate. And as we keep reading, we find that this man is in dire needs physically. It says he's covered with sores. Imagine that. I mean, it's one thing to have one open sore that's very painful. But this man, it says, is covered in sores. His arms, his legs, his hands, his feet, his front, his back, his head, his neck, he's covered in sores. This must have been miserable. And he's there longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Lazarus was a beggar. And in addition to his physical problems, he had his social problems as well because in their culture, it was a shameful thing to beg. Uh, They had a very strong sense of doing what is honorable and avoiding what is shameful. And here, Lazarus is doing something shameful. He's begging. In fact, just earlier in Luke chapter 16, in verse number 3, there's another man, and that man says, I am ashamed to beg. It was humiliating and dishonorable to beg for something in their culture. But here, uh, this is the, uh, the plight of Lazarus, and he's begging for food. He wants to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Now, Lazarus, when he's begging, he knows that the rich man is very stingy. He doesn't ask the rich man for an entire meal. That would be asking too much. He knows that's unrealistic, and he's not going to get that. The rich man is stingy. He doesn't even ask for food that has fallen onto the table of the rich man. All he's wanting is some food scraps that have fallen off the table onto the floor. He just wants a little bit of mercy. 
just a little compassion, a little pity. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. When it says dogs, don't think of cute little fluffy puppies. <laughs> These would have been street dogs. They would have been the kind of dog that would roam around and get in the trash. They would be unclean, uh, not the kind uh, that would be wanted. And so here we have the poor man. He's at the gate, and he's, he's in dire straits. Now, you might be thinking, why doesn't the poor man just get a job, earn his own wage, and have his own food? Well, he's not physically well enough to do that. He can't seem to stand up. He had to be laying at the gate, and he's covered in sores. Why didn't the rich man's family take care of him? Where is his family in all this? Well, we're not told. Either he doesn't have family, or the family that he does have wants nothing to do with him. Why doesn't the poor man, why doesn't his synagogue just help him? There's no mention of his synagogue, and after all, the poor man is a believer, so believers are part of a local congregation, so where, where are the other believers to help him? No mention of a synagogue here. Instead, this man is found destitute. Financially, he's broke. Socially, he is an outcast. Physically, he's in big trouble with sores all over him. Uh, in every single way, he is in trouble. But he does have one thing going for him, and that is that he has a name, the name Lazarus. And his name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Verse 22. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. Both men eventually die. And we're told here that the rich man uh, excuse me, the poor man is carried away by the angels to his destination. When a person dies, their material part separates from their immaterial part. Their body separates from their soul and their spirit. The body goes in the soil, in the, the tomb or the grave, and the immaterial part, the soul and the spirit, goes to its destination. And here we're told that angels came and carried away the poor man. There's one other place in the Bible where angels come at someone's transition out of this life and escort them to their destination. Uh, that is 2 Kings 2 with Elijah. Remember Elijah, when he transitioned from this life, he, uh, he got a chariot ride. And who was driving that chariot that came down to take him? It would have been an angel or a spirit being. And so he got taken away by a messenger or an angel, just like Lazarus did. So both men die, and they go to the afterlife. So verses 19 through 22, just to recap, give a 
comparison of two men in this life. It's the rich man and the poor man. One man had everything, the other man had nothing. One man was a somebody, the other man was a nobody. And then they died. The rest of the story, verses 23 through 31, transitions from this life to the afterlife. What we have here is a conversation between two men in the afterlife, verses 23 through 31. The two men are Abraham and the rich man. And this conversation is structured around two requests that the rich man has. Request number one is in verses 23 to 26. Request number two is in verses 27 to 31. So the first request, the rich man says, send Lazarus to bring me water. He wants water. That's his first request. His second request, verse 27, is send Lazarus to warn my brothers. To warn my brothers. Let's look at the first request, and this actually begins in verse 23, where verse 23 sets up this conversation. And notice the shift of scene. No longer are we in this life, now we're in the afterlife. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. So the rich man is in a place called Hades. Hades is the place of the dead. It's where the departed spirits go uh, when somebody dies. It's a place uh, known as the underworld. Hades is an English word that comes straight from the Greek. We just uh, took their word. Uh, so Hades is a Greek word. And the Greek word Hades is a translation of the Hebrew word Sheol. So the New Testament and the Greek Septuagint, when they translate the word Sheol, they put it as Hades. And so for that reason, some people, when they speak of this place, they just put those two words together, Sheol, Hades, with a hyphen in between. Sheol, Hades. Hades is the Old Testament word, uh, excuse me, Sheol is the Old Testament word, Hades is the New Testament word. So this man finds himself in Hades, and he looks up, and it says that he's in torment. Verse 23 is the first of four places in this story where it says that the rich man is in torment. Again, in verse 24, he says, I am in agony in this flame. Verse number 27 he speaks of being in, uh, not wanting his brothers to come to this place of torment. And verse 25 as well, Abraham says, you are in agony. So 24, I am in agony. 25, you are in agony. 27, he doesn't want his brothers to come to this place of torment. And now uh, in verse number 23, he is also in torment. He's suffering. He's being tormented. And while he's being tormented, he looks up and he sees far away Abraham and Lazarus in his bosom. So here's the scene. 
The rich man is suffering and in torment, and then far away from him is Abraham and Lazarus. This is Abraham, the patriarch Abraham of the Old Testament. And he sees him, and he also sees this man that he knew named Lazarus. And here is where his first request comes in, verse 24. The rich man cries out and says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony. He says, send Lazarus, as though Lazarus was just sort of his, his servant, just someone there to do something for him. And he's requesting water. The first request, send Lazarus to bring me water. He wants water. Now, the rich man has modest expectations. He doesn't expect very much here. He could have said, send Lazarus to bring me an entire tub of water so that I could submerge myself and completely escape this flame. But he knows that would be asking too much. He doesn't even say, send Lazarus to bring me just one cup of water so that I may drink and be refreshed. Even asking for an entire cup, that would be asking for too much. In fact, he doesn't even say, send Lazarus to dip his entire finger in the water and bring it to me so that my tongue may be refreshed. Even asking for an entire finger dipped in water is too much. But what he does say is have him dip just the tip of his finger in water. All he's asking for is one little drop of water. Just a little bit of mercy, a little bit of compassion, a little bit of, comp of pity. And just like in the previous life, when he would not give food to that poor man, just a little scrap of food, he's going to find out that now he is not going to be getting any water. This rich man is in a place of agony in the flame. He's in a place of flame. Lazarus and Abraham are in a place where there's water. Then comes the response from Abraham. Will he grant the request of the rich man? Verse 25. Child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. Notice how Abraham addresses the rich man. Child. How did the rich man address Abraham? Father. It's a father-child-like relationship. Both men know who the authority figure here is in this conversation. It's Abraham. And he says, Remember that during your life you received good things, and likewise, Lazarus, bad things. What we have here is a dramatic Role reversal from one life to the next. 
in this life, the rich man lived it up. He had everything, all the luxuries one could ask. The poor man had nothing, and he was suffering. Now it's a complete flip-flop. Notice the poor man is said to be comforted. He's being comforted here, whereas the rich man is in agony. So two men in the afterlife, in two different places, one is in a place of flames and agony, the other is in a place where there's refreshing water and he's being comforted. And Abraham happens to be there as well with Lazarus. Verse 26, Abraham continues to give more reason to shut down the request of the rich man. He says, besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to here. When this story happens, it seems like the rich man is a relative newcomer to the underworld. He understands that he can't go get water himself. He's stuck in the flame. But he seems to think that someone can bring water to him. And he's asking for Lazarus to bring that water. But here Abraham has to explain, we can't do that. He says there's a great chasm fixed between us. So what you have is the place where the rich man is in torment, the place where the other two are in comfort, and between them is a great chasm that is fixed. Remember the language of verse 23. They were far away from one another. The poor man and the rich man were far away. They could see one another across the chasm. They could communicate to one another across the chasm, but they could not travel from one side to the other. There was a great chasm fixed. And so this brings up the question, what is this place that Jesus is describing in his teaching? Where does a person go when they pass from this life into the afterlife? The answer to that question is it's different after the ascension of Christ than it was before the ascension of Christ. After the ascension of Christ, when someone dies, they go directly up to be with the Lord. Paul tells us that when someone dies, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So they go up. But it wasn't always that way. Before the ascension, everybody, believer and unbeliever alike, went down. They went down to this place in the underworld, and this place is called Sheol. Just a few examples of believers going down when they die. Uh, one of them is Jacob, the patriarch Jacob. Remember him? Uh, when he found out that his son had died, had been torn apart by animals, or at least that's what he thought. He said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning. So here you have a believer who expected to go down when he died. Godly king Hezekiah, Isaiah 38, 
the Lord had granted him 15 more years of life. And he says about that, I thought I was going to be cut off halfway through my life. He said, I was expecting to go down and to enter the gates of Sheol, Sheol below, a believer who is expecting to go down after his death. Or how about the prophet Samuel? Samuel dies, and then quite some time after his death, then comes along the witch of Endor and Saul, and they conjure up the spirit of the prophet Samuel to interact with Saul. So the spirit of Samuel was located below. He was down. His spirit went down because he was before the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. He was down. Uh, another example of someone who went down is King David. Acts chapter 2, Peter tells us that it was not David who ascended. It was not David who ascended. And there in his Peter's sermon in Acts 2, he's making a contrast between Christ and between David. He's saying both of the men died. They both went down. One of them came up immediately. The other one did not. David, when he died, he stayed down in the lower parts of the earth, but Christ did not. He was raised. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Think about that for a minute. Today, you will be with me in paradise. By the way, what a loving thing for Jesus to say. They're both there dying. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Well, where did they go the few days after they died? They went down. They went into the lower parts of the earth. They went down to paradise to Abraham's bosom, this place where Abraham was staying. After the ascension of Christ, the Apostle Paul says, I was caught up to paradise. Now, wait a minute. Jesus just said, today you will be with me in paradise, and they went down. But Paul was saying that paradise is up. So which is it? Well, one was before the ascension of Christ. The other was after the ascension of Christ. Both Testaments, Old Testament and New Testament, speak of paradise changing locations at the time of the ascension. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 to 9, and Psalm 86, verse 18. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. That is, he took those who were captive in the godly part of the underworld and brought them with him to the third heaven when he ascended. He emptied the godly part of Sheol and took them with him when he went up. The ascension of Christ. And so this story in Luke chapter 16, is it before or after the ascension of Christ? It's before so they were both down, uh, they're in the underworld, and there is a great chasm fixed between the two in the underworld. There's the, the godly part, where the, God, where the uh, righteous people are, where Lazarus is, where Abraham is, where King David was, where Hezekiah was, where uh, the prophet Samuel was. And then there's the part for the ungodly, and that's where 
the rich man found himself with a great chasm fixed between the two far away. So the first request by the rich man is shot down by Abraham. And by the way, did you notice that this first request was about himself? Bring me water. He's thinking about himself first. But now he offers a re- he brings up a request for his brothers. Verses 17 through 23. This is a request number 2. His request is send Lazarus to warn my brothers. Verse 27. He said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. I beg you, Father. Who is the beggar now? The rich man. It's a total role reversal. He is the one who is begging. And he's begging that Abraham would send Lazarus to his father's house. Again, just send the servant Lazarus to do the work. Send Lazarus. He says, verse 28, For I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Warn the brothers. The rich man wants the poor man to evangelize his brothers. Give them the gospel, he says. Tell them how they can avoid this place of torment that I'm in. He says, I don't want them to suffer the same fate that I'm suffering right now. This is miserable. Spare them from this. Send Lazarus. That's his request. The reply from Abraham. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the writings of Moses. They have the writings of the prophets. They have the Bible. They have the scriptures that were in existence during the time of Jesus in the first century. Those scriptures that speak of him, those scriptures that speak of judgment, the scriptures that, res- that speak of faith and repentance and point people toward Christ, let them hear Moses and the prophets. They are authoritative. We heard in the scripture reading uh, from John chapter 5, about Moses and the prophets. And here Jesus says the same thing. It's, it's Moses and the prophets. The rich man doesn't like that answer. So he fires back. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If they only have a sign... If they only have a miracle, if they only have someone rise from the dead, if Lazarus goes to them, they knew Lazarus. They knew he died. And if he comes back to life, they'll listen to what he has to say. They will repent. And the rich man, at least in part at this time, does have some good theology in what he says. He knows that the reason why he is in torment 
is because he didn't do something. He did not repent. But he says they still have the opportunity to repent in this life. To repent means to change your mind about something. It means to think about your sin the way that God thinks about your sin. It means that you once cherished your sin and now you abhor your sin. You once ran to sin, you clung to it, and now you want nothing to do with it. It's repulsive to you. It's a change of mind. And a person can know if they've repented. There's evidence of that. The evidence is a change of life. And here the rich man says they will repent if they just have a messenger. Just go preach to them. Just tell them that Jesus Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And they will believe. Just give them the word by a messenger, someone who comes back from the dead. They will repent, he says. Abraham knows better. Abraham said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. People all through history have seen signs and miracles. People uh, of old were raised from the dead, and that doesn't necessarily result in repentance. In fact, some uh, people in this time did rise from the dead. Lazarus, another man, a friend of Jesus, rose from the dead. And for many people, that did not result in repentance. It resulted in people hating Jesus all the more, and they wanted to kill him. Jesus himself rose from the dead, and many people still do not believe in him. They will not repent of their sins. Now, maybe you're sitting here, and you're thinking, I don't want a preacher telling me I need to repent of my sin. I love my sin. My sin is comforting to me. It brings me pleasure. Maybe you don't want to hear Jesus telling you to repent of your sin. But I beg of you, listen to the rich man telling you to repent of your sin. Right now, he is in torment. Back then, he was in torment. He is in agony, suffering in the flames. And he has a voice right now, and he's telling those who have ears, repent of your sins and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can forgive your sins. In conclusion, this passage of Scripture is a, an account by Jesus in which he tells us about a man who ended up in a place of fiery torment because he did not repent of his sins. There was one thing this man did not do. What was that one thing? Repent. He did not repent. Now many people look at this passage and they say, Jesus just made this story up. He just fabricated it. 
This is not a historical account. This is just uh, hypothetical. It was invented by Jesus for illustrative purposes. And the reason they say that is because this story does not fit with their understanding of the afterlife. I think it's best to view this story as being true, a true story, a historically accurate story. And one of the reasons for that is because this story mentions the speech of Abraham. Abraham was a real historical person. And in this story, he's speaking. It's conversation. His entire verses are quoted uh, for Abraham. Jesus is quoting Abraham. If Jesus were quoting Abraham as saying something, and Abraham didn't actually say these things, Jesus would be putting words in Abraham's mouth. He would be saying, Abraham said, when in reality, Abraham did not say. He would be deceiving and lying to his hearers by saying, Abraham said, even though Abraham didn't say. Rather, I think Jesus is giving an accurate account of what Abraham said and not misrepresenting, not uh, uh, misquoting Abraham. It's not a false attribution of quotation. It's real. And another thing, there's nothing in this passage of Scripture that goes against any other doctrine of the Bible. Uh, What Jesus is saying here fits perfectly with all the other teachings of Scripture about the afterlife, Uh, especially when we consider the chronological factor of where a believer goes after the resurrection and ascension to Christ as opposed to before the resurrection and ascension. So all that to say, it's best to see this story as a true story, the rich man as a real person, the poor man Lazarus as a real man who had real experiences, and Abraham as a real historical person. And the point of the story in one word is repent. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who can forgive sins. He rose from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. And for those who would have faith and put their trust in him, repent of their sins. Lord, I pray that if there be one here who's listening right now, that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would no longer cling to their sin, but they would cling to Christ. They would flee the things of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and run to the Lord Jesus who can redeem and forgive and regenerate and make one born again. May today be the day of salvation. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the teaching of Jesus. 
And I pray that we would have hearts to receive your word, to be uh, challenged by it, to grow in it, and to love all the more Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.